Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. In a case control study, researchers examined suicide risk assessment received before suicide death of VHA patients with a history of depression. Their study, which analyzed data gathered prior to VHA suicide prevention initiatives in 2007, found that about 74% of VHA patients who had current or past diagnoses of depression and who ultimately died by suicide, had received assessments of suicidal ideation within the year prior to suicide. However, such assessment at the final visit prior to death was much less frequent, with 70% or more not receiving an assessment. Furthermore, the likelihood of documented assessment varied markedly according to whether a patient's final visit occurred with mental health services. Use of less time-sensitive approaches to suicide risk, such as assessment of access to means and safety planning, were generally low, both at the final visit and in the preceding year. Rates of assessment at final visit did not vary, even if patients had been seen as recently as seven days prior to suicide and the rates of denial of suicidal ideation were consistently high, at 70% or higher, even when patients were questioned within seven days of suicide. The authors note that these findings may have broad applicability. They recommend, one, increasing the use of less time-sensitive approaches to addressing suicide risk, such as assessing access to means and safety planning. Two, evaluating the feasibility of routine referral of patients with suicidal ideation to mental health services. And three, perhaps facilitating routine assessment of suicidal ideation in a less provider-intensive fashion, for example, through standardized self-reports, since it may be difficult for clinicians to identify when such assessments are most needed. This research was supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs Health Services Research and Development Service and by the National Institute of Mental Health. Most of the antidepressants in the SNRI class have greater selectivity for serotonin than norepinephrine reuptake inhibition. Levomilnazapran, on the other hand, is a potent SNRI that is more selective for inhibition of norepinephrine than serotonin reuptake and may provide benefits in symptoms related to adrenergic dysfunction. A sustained release formulation of levomilnazapran that would allow for once daily dosing is currently in late stage clinical development. In an eight week study funded by Forest Laboratories, patients with major depressive disorder received placebo or a 40 milligram, 80 milligram, or 120 milligram daily dose of levomilnazapran SR. 
The primary outcome was change at endpoint on the Montgomery-Asburg Depression Rating Scale. Changes in work, social, and family functioning were measured with the Sheehan Disability Scale. At the end of the study, each levomilnazapran dosage group had a significantly greater change in the Montgomery-Asburg Depression Score compared with the placebo group. Greater change and earlier improvement occurred with higher doses. Improvement in work, social, and family functioning was seen in all dosage groups, but the difference was statistically significant versus placebo only at the two higher doses. The researchers concluded that levomilnazapran SR, especially in the higher dose range, improved both symptoms and functional impairment in MDD. The drug was also generally well tolerated. You may access the full text of this article free via the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Little is known about predictors of recovery from bipolar depression or moderators of treatment response. A study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health looked at the possible impact of attributional style in patients with bipolar disorder, which refers to the individual's cognitive pattern of explaining the causes of life events. The study looked at whether attributional style predicts the likelihood of recovering from episodes of bipolar depression. It also evaluated whether attributional style would moderate the effects of psychotherapy in these patients. 106 bipolar patients were randomized to either intensive psychotherapy for depression or to collaborative care, a minimal psychoeducational intervention. Regardless of whether the attributions were optimistic or pessimistic, patients who made more extreme attributions, in other words, those who chose response options at one end of the scale or the other, had a lower likelihood of recovery and a longer time to recovery independent of the effects of initial depression severity. There was no difference in recovery rates between intensive psychotherapy and collaborative care, so the researchers couldn't evaluate attributional style as a moderator of treatment effects. The results do suggest, however, that making extreme, rigid attributions about the cause of life events may be associated with a poor course of depression in bipolar disorder. Patients with major depressive disorder often experience impaired sexual satisfaction and poor quality of life. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the first-line treatment for MDD, can cause sexual dysfunction, potentially worsening sexual satisfaction and quality of life. In this study, researchers examined the impact of MDD and the SSRI citalopram on sexual satisfaction and quality of life in level one of the STAR-D trial conducted from July 2001 to September 2006. They conducted a retrospective analysis of change in sexual satisfaction as measured by item nine of the quality of life enjoyment and satisfaction questionnaire. 
The study population consisted of 2,280 patients with DSM-4 TR-defined MDD who were treated with citalopram for 12 weeks. The researchers found that impaired sexual satisfaction was present in 64.3% of MDD patients at pretreatment but that the percentage declined to 47.1% after treatment with citalopram. Those who achieved remission had less impaired sexual satisfaction and better quality of life. The prevalence of impaired sexual satisfaction in remitters was 21.2% versus 61.3% in non-remitters, a highly significant difference. There were significant associations between depressive symptoms and impaired sexual satisfaction and between impaired sexual satisfaction and lower quality of life. There was also an association between citalopram treatment and increased probability of impaired sexual satisfaction and a poor quality of life in patients who continued to have moderate to severe depression. The authors conclude that despite the sexual side effects of the SSRI's citalopram, treating depression to full remission was significantly associated with improvements in sexual satisfaction and quality of life. To what extent can the results of clinical trials in bipolar disorder be generalized to real-world populations with bipolar disorder? To answer this question, researchers applied a set of eligibility criteria that were representative of those in bipolar disorder clinical trials to a sample of adults with bipolar disorder who participated in the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. They found that more than 5 out of 10 participants with bipolar depression and mania would have been excluded by at least one eligibility criterion. Having a significant risk of suicide and having a diagnosis of alcohol abuse or dependence led to the greatest exclusion rate in clinical trials for bipolar disorder. Traditional clinical trials tend to exclude a majority of individuals with bipolar disorder, particularly those seeking treatment by preferentially recruiting patients without significant comorbidity as opposed to recruiting real-life patients. The authors urge clinicians and researchers to carefully consider eligibility criteria and their impact on the representativeness of clinical trials. Schizophrenia is associated with dramatically increased premature mortality from infectious diseases. Immune system abnormalities in schizophrenia have also been an enduring finding. Urinary tract infections, or UTIs, are common, and evidence from geriatric psychiatry supports an association between UTIs and worsening psychiatric symptoms, most often in patients with dementia or delirium. Despite these associations, there are no studies of infections at the time of hospitalization for acute illness relapse in schizophrenia patients. 
The investigators in this study, in their clinical experience, had observed anecdotally an increased prevalence of UTI at the time of admission in patients with an acute psychotic relapse, but their observations had not been quantified. The investigators performed a study funded by the Georgia Health Sciences University Department of Psychiatry that included 57 subjects with an acute relapse of schizophrenia, 40 stable outpatients with schizophrenia, and 39 healthy controls. They found that 35% of acutely relapsed subjects compared to 5% of stable outpatients and 3% of controls had a UTI. They also found that only 40% of UTIs in acutely relapsed subjects were recognized and treated with antibiotics during hospitalization. After the analyses were controlled for gender and smoking status, subjects with an acute relapse of schizophrenia were almost 29 times more likely to have a UTI than the control group. There was no association, however, with UTI among stable outpatients versus controls. The authors believe their findings warrant replication in other samples. The mechanism of association remains unclear. The results also highlight the potential importance of monitoring for comorbid UTI in acutely relapsed patients with schizophrenia. Although a growing body of scientific literature has suggested a link between ADHD and PTSD in children, less is known about the association of these two disorders in adults. The aim of this study, which was funded by the National Institutes of Health, was to compare ADHD among adults with and without PTSD in relation to several domains, including demographics, patterns of psychiatric comorbidities, functional impairments, quality of life, social adjustment, and patterns of familial transmission. The study took place in an outpatient mental health clinic with male and female participants between the ages of 18 and 55. Structured psychiatric interviews were completed to confirm ADHD diagnoses for participants in the clinical group and to rule out ADHD for those in the control group. 418 relatives of these participants also completed structured psychiatric interviews to assess familial risk. In addition, participants completed rating scales designed to assess quality of life, social adjustment, and socioeconomic status. Results show that although adults with ADHD, with and without PTSD, did not differ in terms of ADHD symptom severity, those with PTSD tended to have greater functional impairment and higher rates of psychiatric comorbidities. Specifically, adults with comorbid ADHD and PTSD reported lower quality of life in several domains, including overall life satisfaction. In terms of familial transmission, relatives of adults with ADHD with and without PTSD had significantly elevated rates for both PTSD and ADHD. In bipolar 1 disorder, depression is more common than mania, 
and bipolar depression is associated with functional impairment and risk of suicide. Using data from a sample of 219 bipolar 1 patients who were followed up to 25 years, Solomon and colleagues determined the duration of depressive episodes and examined the factors associated with time to recovery. The study, which was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, assessed mood for each week of follow-up by using annual to semi-annual interviews. The first three prospectively observed episodes were identified, yielding 402 depressive episodes for analysis. Survival models assessed consistency of episode duration for individuals and examined factors associated with time to recovery. The median duration of major depressive episodes was 14 weeks, and over 70% of patients recovered within 12 months of onset. The median duration of minor depressive episodes was eight weeks, with approximately 90% of patients recovering within six months of onset. For each participant, the duration of subsequent major depressive episodes was not consistent. More, yet still limited, consistency was seen in the duration of minor depressive episodes. For each year of follow-up that participants were still in a depressive episode, the likelihood of recovery was reduced by 7%. Thus, a more chronic course of illness was associated with delayed recovery. Depression and post-traumatic stress disorder are the most common mental disorders following traumatic war experiences, and they frequently co-occur. This study, which was funded by a grant from the European Commission, investigated whether war survivors with co-occurring depression and PTSD have experienced a different number of traumatic events, more general psychological distress, higher suicide risk, and lower quality of life as compared to war survivors with either disorder alone. Researchers conducted face-to-face -face interviews with 3,313 randomly selected participants among war-affected community samples in five Balkan countries. Results revealed that 30.5% of participants met diagnostic criteria for either depression or PTSD, whereas 9.1% met criteria for both disorders. Participants with concomitant depression and PTSD reported significantly higher numbers of pre-war and post-war traumatic events than participants with PTSD only, and a higher number of war-related events than those with depression only. Individuals with both disorders had significantly higher levels of general psychological and post-traumatic stress symptoms, higher suicide risk, and lower levels of quality of life than participants with either condition alone. In general, the results indicate that assessment for co-occurring depression and PTSD should be done frequently in both research and treatment settings, as it helps to better identify individuals with severe psychopathology and poor quality of life. The authors note that future research should investigate whether war survivors with both depression and PTSD need specific health care interventions. 
Hyponatremia is the most common electrolyte disorder seen in psychotic patients, with a prevalence ranging from 7% to 10% among inpatients. Hyponatremia usually doesn't evoke concern among mental health professionals unless an acute drop in serum sodium leads to frank neurologic symptoms. In this month's ASCP Corner, the authors review the adverse consequences of chronic hyponatremia and look at management options. If left untreated, acute hyponatremia can lead to irreversible neurologic damage and even death. Fortunately, the more commonly seen condition is mild, chronic hyponatremia, which develops slowly over days and weeks, allowing the adaptive mechanisms in the brain to reduce brain cell volume and limit cerebral swelling. However, the authors discuss new findings showing that mild, chronic hyponatremia is not benign at all and instead represents a significant health problem that can lead to increased fall risk, attention deficits, osteoporosis and fractures, and increased mortality. The article goes on to look at treatment suggestions for chronic hyponatremia, including a new class of medications known as vasopressin antagonists. Ziprazidone has many pharmacodynamic properties that suggest it may have antidepressant action, especially when there is a risk of switching into mania. A recent randomized controlled trial, however, found that ziprazidone was no better than placebo in patients with major depressive disorder. In this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the implications of these findings, as well as the question of how much clinicians can rely on pharmacodynamic properties to guide expectations of efficacy. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to get Dr. Andrade's take on the topic and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and much, much more from the March issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for The Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.